You're listening to Beyond the Ordinary, a show about the companies, founders, and ideas that are shaping the future of health, science, and financial technology. Here's your host, Tommy Martin. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome back to Beyond the Ordinary. We are so glad today to have a special guest, David Lau. David really represents uh, both sides of the house here at Mammoth. You know, a lot of times we're talking to founders, trying to help them understand the road they're going to go down as they try to get this company launched and they deal with venture capital. We're also talking with investors and trying to address the, the things that they're up to. Well, David is actually a founder of a firm that does a whole lot of investment work. So I'm really excited to hear from this today. And it's outside of our norm. A lot of times we're talking with venture capital firms. Today, we're actually going to talk about more of this stable money, like your hard-earned nest egg, not your surplus funds that you're trying to shoot for the moon with venture capital. We're going to be talking about your stable money today. And I'm so thankful to have David here. So David, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Tommy. I'm looking forward to the conversation. It'll be fun. Well, again, thanks for joining us, David. And listeners, David is a founder of DPL Financial Partners. He's also a longtime innovator in the financial service space. So you're going to get to hear about a lot of cool stuff today. You know, David, one of the things we always like to start with asking is just tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, where you live, about your family even. Uh, Our listeners love to hear just a little more about you. And then definitely we're going to launch into the company that you founded and all the great work you're doing. Sure. So I live in Louisville, Kentucky. I'm not a Kentucky native. I spent most of my life in Northern Virginia outside the DC area, uh, but was born in Jersey City, New Jersey. You know, kind of claim that as my hometown, much to the kidding and teasing of my wife, because I'm, she doesn't view me as a Jersey City guy, but uh, I, I view myself ha- of having roots there. I'm a huge sports fan, all kinds of sports. I love to play golf. I love baseball. I'm an avid Red Sox fan. Been to Fenway Park like every at least once a year, every year for 35 years. And I'm a huge Duke basketball fan. And that ties back to my Jersey City roots. When I was a kid growing up in Northern Virginia in ACC territory, Duke had a number of players on their team from Jersey City. And I kind of you know, gravitated toward, towards Duke at that point. I love it, man. So in business school, my favorite professor was actually the guy at Harvard Business School that wrote the case study about Coach K and Bobby Knight. And he was contrasting these two guys, basically saying, look, on paper, at the time he was doing the case study, at least, they had nearly identical track records. But at the conclusion, one night you have all of Duke camped outside of Coach K's house, begging him not to go be the coach at the Lakers, you know, begging him to turn down hundreds of millions of dollars. And conversely, with Bobby Knight, you have lots of the campus lined outside his house and they're like picketing, saying, you have to fire this guy. The whole case that is built around what was it that set these two men apart when on paper, their track records at the time were nearly identical. And so my professor, Scott Snook, actually got to do play for both of those guys, uh, either at basketball camps or at his time playing basketball at West Point. So it was a really cool thing. Anyway, I'll send you the case study. Uh, I think you'll love it. Oh, I'd love to, love to read it. But, yeah. uh, but how long have you been in Louisville? And uh, for our listeners on the coast, it is not Louisville. It's Louisville. And so how long have you been there? 
Yeah, and it's not Louisville either. They call it Louisville, and you know you just kind of mumble it, right? It's it's Louisville. No, I've been here for a while now. I've been here 13, 14 years. I moved out to build a company. You know, at that time, you know, an insurance carrier, and you know, wound up you know staying ever since. It's kind of home now. Well, you've had a great track record historically of being an innovator in the financial service space, David. So let's start back kind of at the beginning of that journey and then work our way to what you're up to today. Yeah. So my first job in financial services was with a small local bank in Northern Virginia that became the first internet bank in the country. So, you know, I joined, you know, with this company, I was, you know, employee like number 12. We were looking to do something different in banking and it was even pre-internet. But so the notion at first was let's eliminate bank branches. If we can stop building bank branches, which are just a really expensive way of selling commodity products, checking accounts, CDs, whatnot, if we can go direct to consumer and do it you know, by telephone and mail and those kinds of things, we can provide much better products. So the bank was called Telebank. And about a year into our launch, you know, the internet was starting to come along. And so that was a great way of transitioning, at least the positioning of the bank. It really, you know, the internet was so clunky back then. It, it wasn't, you know, actually hugely additive to our business. It was still mostly about the direct model, but it was sexy. What year was this when this was happening? Sure. This is 1994 into 1995. So we're still we're still in the days of dial up for a lot of people. You are definitely in the days of dial up. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So, I mean, this is very early Internet days. And I mean, and it was a super cool time to be you know, an Internet company. It was the Wild West and everybody was trying to figure out how to make money. For us, we had a solid business plan. Like we had a legitimate business. We had a bank. We knew how to make money on banking products, you know, and we knew how to, you know, acquire customers profitably and, you know, have a legitimate real business, you know, unlike many internet companies at that time, which were absurd. You'd go meet these companies and somebody gave them $150 million for like a terrible idea. And you're like, how in the world did this happen? But it was just the wild, wild west. And, you know, you go around meeting all these other big internet companies, trying to form deals, create some you know revenue flow back and forth. You know, as you're all getting off the ground, but it it was great fun. It's like today's version of NFTs back then. Yes, yeah, craziness, or you know, I don't know if you'd liken it to Bitcoin, but maybe yeah, NFTs, you know, some blockchain, something like that. At least for our listeners, Bitcoin and blockchain are a little bit further ahead in their minds. But NFTs still the Wild West. You know, you're you're buying your NFT, and if you're not on a stable site, you don't even know if you're like giving them access to your entire holdings. So that type of Wild West. But and for our listeners that don't know what we mean when we say dial up, first bless you. I'm so thankful that you up and comers are out there, and uh, just go YouTube it and watch somebody actually click on their dial up if somebody has a video that they made of that back in those days it's pretty phenomenal to watch so yeah so you know back then you're getting online by dial up you're coming onto our site and you know a lot of what we did was you know one eliminating those branches provided much better priced products you know so we had CD rates, you know, that were, you know, the highest in the country, checking accounts, money market accounts that paid tremendous interest rates. 
and then you know we innovated in that you know we're building bill payment capabilities you know things that endured today right creating online bill payment we created the idea of an atm refund atm machines were just starting to charge you a fee to get access to your money maybe people don't even remember when atms used to be free but atms used to be free and atms were still new relatively new at that time and then they started charging you a fee if you weren't a customer of that bank so we started refunding those fees if if somebody charged you as one of our customers for using their machine we we gave you the money back and there's still some people who do that today you know charles schwab and their bank they do that a lot of you know big national banks do that for larger customers you got to really be part of the genesis of the entire movement towards internet banking which obviously today you know most of us bank primarily from our phones and what was the next step after that then that ultimately led to dpl yeah, so we built that bank and you know Telebank and ultimately merged with E-Trade and it became E-Trade Bank and that was at the time the first merger of a bank and brokerage in the country. And so it you know took a lot of regulatory scrutiny to you know create the merger, but we ultimately merged with E-Trade and became E-Trade Bank. I was the chief marketing officer. You know, we Basically, we're trying to do similar things, you know, cut costs out of financial services and, you know, cut costs out of the delivery, out of the products, out of commissions, whatever it might be, to bring better consumer value, which is really what's driven me throughout my career. So, the same notion of, you know, I'm, you know, a contrarian, which is a good thing in many regards, somewhat of a pain in the neck if you ask my wife, right? But I'm a, I'm a contrarian. So I, I always ask, like, why does this need to be so? And, you know, a terrible answer is because it's always the way we've done it. So I've kind of applied that throughout my career to look at the way things are done within financial services and question why is it that way? And does it have to be that way? And can't we improve that? In all in the notion of how do we bring better value to the end customer? Because if you can do that and you can execute well, you're going to build a successful business. So after leaving E-Trade, I spent you know, a number of years kind of consulting literally for people around the globe on how to build an internet bank. I mean, you know, like the largest bank in Japan to you know Merrill Lynch to you know other players who are looking to do that. But ultimately, I was a builder, not a consultant. And I really didn't, <laughs> didn't enjoy doing that, but it was, it was kind of a, you know, a fun few years, but it wasn't ultimately what I wanted to do. So I rejoined the guy who was the founder of Telebank, uh, a guy named David Smilo, who had founded an insurance carrier. And he's like, why don't you come help me build out the carrier? And I became the chief operating officer of a carrier called Jefferson National, where the notion of instead of eliminating bank branches, we're going to take commissions out. Now, commissions are you know super inefficient and really drive up pricing within annuity products. And frankly, if annuities are controversial, it's because of commissions, right? The you know commissions are kind of the root of all evil Absolutely. You know, when it comes to products. So for our listeners, David, uh, I've spent over 20 years in financial services. And for a lot of that time, annuities were kind of a four-letter word. It was like, oh, you you don't touch those unless you're a shark. And, and David's 100% right. It's like the root of all evil in the annuities is really that commission because it's because of that commission that annuities had to have things like surrender penalties, where if you wanted to get your money back, you could take it back, but you had to pay uh, sometimes 12% or more penalty 
just to get access to your money. And so anytime somebody had a problem, a life event changed and they needed their money back, it was like this massive problem. And it was all because there were these big commissions baked in. I mean, I remember the days of 10% plus commissions in annuities. So just for our listeners, simple math, if you know, if you're putting in $200,000 to an annuity, it was like a $20,000 commission. I mean, whereas even in those days, if you're putting $200,000 into a mutual fund that had an A share, it was significantly less than that. So this was kind of the place to go get the biggest commission in the industry at the time. And it probably still is, right? I mean, for for commissioned brokers, you know, annuities have always been very profitable at the expense of the client. So the way it works is that that commission is baked into the cost of the product. So the, the client's not paying it up front you know, to the broker, the insurance carrier's paying it to the broker, and then they're increasing the fees in the product so that little by little, they're taking the money back from the client and doing it with that surrender period. So basically, yeah, you can't leave early because we got to take our money back. And if you do, we're going to hit you with that penalty. So again, we get our money back. And I didn't even realize you were at Jefferson National, David. So, you know, about that same time as David was helped getting that launched, I learned about this annuity product that was really innovative. And what it was designed to do was still protect the tax play of the annuity, where sometimes that is helpful and appropriate for clients, but eliminate the commissions and allow the advisor to have access to a really good lineup of investment choices and a very, very low cost. I mean, the the cost for the client was like $20 a month. So it's neat for me to go a little full circle here and realize that was part of what shifted my mindset from, okay, these don't always have to be a four-letter word to, wow, if there was a better way to actually design these, there's some benefits inside of these things that could be really, really useful. So that's awesome. And and I'm starting to see the tie-in that your experience with E-Trade and the bank in eliminating that middleman of cost is going to lead to this incredible opportunity with DPL. So I, I won't get ahead of you. You're at Jefferson National. And then how does that continue to morph? Yeah. So I, I spent a decade at Jefferson National you know, building that company from the ground up. And like you said, what, what we were able to do is eliminate the commission because the annuity structure is an outstanding structure. I mean, there's a lot of great benefits to the structure of an annuity. It gets problems when you start introducing commissions and costs and complexity and all that stuff. But at the fundamental core of it is a really good structure. You get tax deferral, you can get guaranteed lifetime income, you know, you get some really good benefits. So if you can make those accessible and affordable and less expensive, they're tremendous assets to a portfolio, to a retirement plan. So anyhow, so as I'm building Jefferson National, one of the dynamics that happened as we built the bank was that because of the innovation we were pushing, banks had to follow along. Everybody had to start offering internet access, bill payment, you know, those kind of things. So we really were able to advance the entire industry because of, you know, what we were pushing on the innovation front. And then at Jefferson National, that didn't happen. You know, so we were able to build a successful business, but we didn't pull the rest of the industry along with us, you know, which was really my goal. And part of the problem was that carriers didn't know how to do it. 
They didn't know how to build fee-based products. They didn't know how to service you know people who were working on fees rather than commissions. And the people who are working on commissions, as you were saying earlier, are pretty happy. They're getting their nice big commission. So it's like, oh, if it, it's not broke, don't fix it. You know, kind of uh, problem. However, you know, if you look at it from an outsider's point of view outside the industry, you said, actually, it is kind of broken. Let's do fix it. So that's basically what I decided to you know, create DPL. I'm like, we're not creating this structural change in the same way we were able to do it at the bank. Let me create DPL. And the difference is rather than being the product manufacturer, we work with all the product manufacturers. So we create this marketplace. So the model was kind of Charles Schwab 1980s, aggregating no-load mutual funds, right? Can we do the same thing for insurance? Can we go to all these carriers, help them design product, figure out how to service advisors who are working on fees rather than commissions? All the stuff we figured out while I was building Jefferson National, but now we'll do it across the industry with all these carriers, aggregate them all together and create a marketplace. So the other part of you know delivering client value, consumer value, is you need choice. So let's create choice. Let's create price competition. Let's create technology that enables easy product selection, all these different things, drive costs down, create consumer value. And that's what we're building here. And I'm so thankful because what we've experienced in the in the financial industry is you still have a lot of talking heads out there, you know, really well-known radio personalities or TV personalities, whatever they may be. And they kind of make this broad-based claim that annuities are just evil. What you are really doing is solving those inherent challenges, reducing the costs, getting rid of surrender penalties, all those things that it's almost like having that brick and mortar bank, all those problems that were being caused by having that commission-based annuity product, you're eliminating all of that. And here's why it's so important. And listeners, I really want you to hear this. For your kind of slow and steady money, and it doesn't even have to be slow, but just for your normal nest egg that you've worked so hard to build and protect, most of the leading research says that a key factor for happiness inside of retirement is having a guaranteed income stream that you can depend on. And if you think about it, that makes a lot of sense. You've worked your entire life. You've earned really good, steady money along the way. You don't want that to change in retirement. You want to know no matter what happens, if the market's up, if the market's down, sideways, whatever, that you're still going to have that steady paycheck. And there's just no better tool out there to provide guaranteed lifetime income to you than an annuity. So for me, it's the products like what David has made accessible through DPL that actually make it so that you can have this product that used to be a four-letter word become a non-four-letter word because it's doing what it's supposed to do. And so really, really important. And then as you launched DPL, David, it was like I was looking at your timing and I remember telling a colleague one day like, oh my gosh, this guy has the best timing ever in the history of a financial launch because it was pretty quickly thereafter that the Department of Labor came out with their proposed fiduciary rule. That's right. And and so and that was kind of telegraphed so everybody kind of knew it was coming. You know, it'd been talked about for a long time. And that was frankly a, a really important factor in being able to launch DPL because 
not only I, I was coming out of you know having this success of showing at Jefferson National that you can be successful distributing commission-free products. So I had that reputation in the industry, but then there was also this threat of regulatory pressure that was going to drive the industry towards fee-based rather than commission-based business. So every carrier was like, we need to know how to do this. We need to understand all the issues around this. So I spent a couple of years along with a couple other guys that I brought with me from Jefferson National, consulting for carriers, basically to help them build products and technology that would enable me to launch DPL, right? So it was a great way of kind of funding the business and getting the products that we needed. That was the thing we didn't control in this business model is having the products and kind of that threat of that regulation. I'd like to believe we're going to get there anyhow, but it certainly helped to have you know that threat of regulation there to really drive carriers to want to play and build products you know that were going to work in our business model. And David, for our listeners that have no clue what I'm talking about when I say the Department of Labor uh, fiduciary rule, what was it in that rule, in that proposed rule at least, that was driving these insurance companies to want to change their products and eliminate those commissions? So if you, if you think about it in kind of ways, you know, the normal consumer can understand, I will oversimplify. There are generally two types of financial advisors, and we can loosely use the word advisor. There are people who actually get paid for advice. You know, the client is actually paying a professional like yourself for advice. And then there are people who get paid on commissions who are brokers or they might have a mix of fees and, and commissions, but they're getting paid by the product company. And in the annuity world, that's the dominant thing, right? You've got commissioned brokers being paid by product companies. So they're really salesmen. They're not advisors. And the fiduciary rule was trying to clean that up a little bit so that if you're a consumer, you know who you're dealing with. Are you dealing with a fiduciary advisor who's providing you advice, or are you dealing with a salesperson? And so, this regulation was trying to make sure the salespeople were actually at least disclosing to you all of their conflicts of interest. They're making sure they had to you know, illustrate that the product was the best product for you. And so, in doing that, there would be a move towards commission-free products because they're going to be better products. And if you've got to show in regulatory compliance that you're using the best product for your client, then commission-free products are going to you know, win the day. Absolutely. We saw this amazing push. You know, Outside of being uh, in David's company, we saw this amazing push happening where it seemed like overnight, and we didn't know behind the scenes they'd already been consulting with you for a while, but it seemed like overnight, all these companies that previously were like, no, no, we're never going to have a commission-free product, they were just started to come out with them finally. And for a lot of us in the industry, it's just this sigh of relief, like, okay, we really want access to these tools and we want to get rid of the barrier that holds people back thinking that they're evil, uh, the surrender penalties, you know, the really high fees we were seeing those walls get knocked down just left and right. It was, you know, it was a really incredible time in terms of just movement of an entire industry almost overnight. So incredible work you guys have been doing, David. Um, I do want to pivot. We're going to, we'll come back uh, at the very end. We'll come back. If any of our listeners are trying to figure out, gosh, how can I get my hands on some of these tools 
if having some guaranteed income in retirement makes sense to me and I want to do that through a commission-free structure. We'll come back to that at the end. A lot of our listeners are also founders. They're other founders. You are a founder. So you've launched DPL. It's uh, been tremendously successful. You have taken some venture capital along the way. At least uh, I think we see that publicly. Maybe just speak for a couple minutes, if you would, on your kind of journey of deciding when to take capital, how much to take, and how you chose those capital partners. I think that would be really intriguing for our audience as well. That's great. So I I always appreciate hearing other founders talk about their journey and their decision-making processes, you know, along those regards too. So originally I, like many founders, you know, was bootstrapping, you know, DPL, then adding in some of the consulting dollars that, you know, we were getting from, you know, from the carriers as we were building the business. And once I thought we had critical mass in terms of enough depth and breadth of product to go to market, that for me is when I wanted to raise capital. You know, it was a little bit different. In many ways, you often want to wait a little while to go out and you know, show proof of concept, show that you know, you've got traction before you can go raise capital if you've got the luxury of doing that. You know, so you don't get as diluted, you'll get a little better valuation in the early days. But I knew that in order to do it right, we we're going to need some capital from the beginning. So I started by calling insurance carriers that I knew would want to be, you know, would want to be in this market. And while I didn't necessarily want to have insurance carriers as equity investors, I thought maybe I could give get them just to give me money to do it for free. And it turns out like they were going to until <laughs> until you know one of them said, "Actually, you should meet one of our investors." Uh, it's a firm called Eldridge, which is founded by this guy named Todd Bowley. So. Todd Bowley had been somebody who was interested in Jefferson National back in the day. And they're like, he, he would be very interested in what you're building. So Todd is a younger guy, a you know, kind of self-made billionaire. And he's a part owner of the LA Dodgers and the LA Lakers and DraftKings and all these great companies. And I met Todd and he just loved the idea of what, what we're doing. And effectively, he you know, funded us on a business plan. You know, which is a great thing, by the way, if, you, if you're able to do that, it's tremendous. But I think due to some of the success I'd had in other ventures between the bank and Jefferson National, you know, I was able to do that. And having had experience with a lot of different investors, I also wanted to make sure that I was maintaining control. You know, I had a very strong vision for what I wanted to build. Todd supported that and continues to support it, by the way, you know, several years later. And I wanted to make sure I maintained control. So I originally structured our funding as debt. You know, we launched with, you know, a debt structure, which we ultimately converted into equity with Eldridge, but originally launched it as a debt funding. So we did that for a number of a few years and then decided as things were going even better than we anticipated, everybody always worries about dilution. But if you've got a strong business and you're performing well and executing well, you shouldn't be afraid to take more capital. And so we were having a lot of success. And frankly, I just 
said it's foolish not to raise more money. So we should go raise more capital and start growing this faster and building it faster and building it bigger. And we raised some additional capital from Eldridge as well as brought in another investor, Atlas Merchant Capital, who's founded by Bob Diamond, who was the CEO of Barclays. So, you know, we've got two really good investors who know the industry, which was important. Well, you know, one part of your question, how do you choose your investors? People who understand what you're doing and can bring value, you know, can make introductions, can you know, be valuable in your strategic planning, can help you grow. They've got you know, demonstrated personal history of growth and success. You know, those are all things that you want to have in your investors. So Atlas and Eldridge have both been you know, tremendous capital partners as well as operating partners for us. And I love what you said, David. It's uh, one of my mentors said really early on. He said, you know, I've never cared how much of the pie I owned. It was just how big could we make the pie? And if you make a really, really big pie, it doesn't matter if you own a smaller slice of that pie than if you have a little teeny tiny pie that you own the entire thing. And so I've never been scared of dilution or partners if it was leading to a much bigger pie, which is ultimately what I hear you saying you could see in front of you. Yeah, exactly. And it, it's hard, you know, when you're a founder, it's hard sometimes to give up a piece of your pie, uh, you know, a bit of your vision. But again, if you feel strongly about what you're doing and you see the vision and you see the opportunity for growth, like you said, there's nothing bad about taking dilution in order to accelerate your growth. A small piece of a larger pie can be worth more than, you know, having the entire pie of that's, you know, much smaller. Absolutely. You know, there's a professor named Noam Wasserman And he wrote an incredible book called The Founder's Dilemma. And in it, what he basically is saying is every founder out there, for the most part, has to make this choice of do they want cash or do they want to be the king? And which of those is more important to them? Because at some point along the journey, they probably will have to choose. There's not a lot of actual uh, Mark Zuckerbergs or Bill Gates or uh, Steve Jobs is out there where they get to do both along the way. And Wasserman's point is, as a founder, make sure that you know which you value more so that when it comes time to make some of those choices, you're ready to do it. And, you know, for me, I've just always been a cash guy. I don't need to be anybody's king. I don't need to have my name on the door anywhere. Uh, I just want to build the biggest pie possible. And that's probably what makes me a good venture capitalist, the goal building everybody's pie, not just my own. But I love that. Thanks for sharing that wisdom. And uh, David, I'm going to pivot now into my favorite part of our episodes where I get to ask two questions. The first is always the question everybody wants to know, which really just means it's the question I want to know. And I hope our listeners will enjoy it. And then we'll wrap up really with the real question that people want to know. And that'll be more our call to action and and what they need to do if they want to move forward and, and learn more about the tools that you have available through DPL. So, My question today, uh, the question that everybody wants to know, our listeners probably can't see it unless they saw a little promo video, but you are actually wearing a master's sweater today from, you know, the master's at Augusta, Georgia. Is that just because you're a fan? Did you visit? Have you actually golfed there? Yes, all of the above. I got to play. I mean, the highlight, of course, getting to, I got to stay on property in one of the cabins, uh, got to have dinner in the dining room and play Augusta, basically 
with just my group, there was two others of us and we got to play in this past January and it was just phenomenal. It was all you would imagine it to be. So that's not an easy thing to accomplish. How did you, how did you make this happen? Honestly, I thought it was spam. I got a, I got an email that said golf at Augusta question from somebody whose name I did not recognize. And I thought it was like maybe one of these you know, agencies that sets up you, letting you take clients and you pay a fortune to go have a, you know, take a bunch of people out to Augusta, you know, or the Kentucky Derby or something like that. And so I opened it just to see, okay, what is this running these days? And it was a note from an executive assistant from a guy we worked with at Transamerica who said he'd like to invite you to come down and play Augusta with him in January. Does this work for you? I'm like, of course it does. I would, I'll you know, be if there. I a, yeah. If I had a meeting with the Pope that day, I'd cancel it. I'm coming. You know, I'll be there. <laughs> so I did get to play and it was all it's cracked up to be. And you played Amen Corner. I did. I played Amen Corner at even par. Could have been. Oh and, my gosh. And, and yeah, and for context, I'm I'm like a 12 to 14 handicap, and I played it at even par. I hit a tremendous shot, you know, on number 11, which is a relatively long par four with the pond to the left. Hit the green from like 200 yards out. You know, had a 20 foot putt, two putted. Hit the green on 12. Had a long putt, wound up two putting. But then on 13, which is the par five over the creek. I pulled my drive a little bit. It got knocked down by a branch. I had to hit like a hybrid. I had a, like 180 yards into the green. I hit the stick on one bounce with, you know, hybrid. And my ball was like six feet for a birdie. I missed the damn birdie putt. But anyhow, it was, uh, yeah, the highlight of the round. You know, amen corner with remarkable holes. Wow, man, that's incredible. That's uh, certainly on my bucket list. I've got to get my back healed up a little bit before we make that trek. But congrats, that's huge. And, you know, transitioning into our final question, which is really, uh, I'm sure some of our listeners out there and many of our listeners are investors. Other listeners are advisors. And so uh, I want to start with the advisors. And let's say there's an advisor that's listening, David. They're interested. They're somehow they've just not heard about what you're up to at DPL before. And they're saying, wow, wait, I always thought annuities were a four letter word too. Or maybe they're using a commission-based product and they're trying to figure out how, how can I still have access to these tools if I get rid of that? What would that advisor's next step be if they wanted to get in contact with DPL? Yeah, they can contact us, you know, go to the website, DPLFP, DPLfinancialpartners.com. Uh, you know, we've got you know, a tremendous amount of resource there. So, I mean, just to give the context of what we do in its entirety is, you know, on the one side, we're working with carriers to bring commission-free products to market. Then we're also building technology so we can help you find the best products for your client need. Because, you know, annuities have got different features. They've got different costs and rates and all these things. So, we kind of normalize that. We call them product discovery tools you know, to help you find the best products for your client, depending on what you're looking to do. And then we also serve as, you know, consultants to financial advisors. So, you know, for many advisors who've not used annuities before because they were that four-letter word, we do a lot of education. We put out a lot of content. We just actually today launched a DPLU you know, DPL University, where you can go and self-learn through annuity basics, you know, up to more advanced 
topics so that you can become an expert and we're always here to support you. So, you know, contact us through dplfp.com. You can, you know, then call us the, the numbers on the on the website and you know work with one of our consultants who are all fantastic. And for our advisor listeners out there, I just want to give an unsolicited perspective. So I am an owner of a RIA firm, so a registered investment advisory firm called Vestia Personal Wealth Advisors. I'm a partial owner of that firm. We've been using DPL for our clientele for several years now. It's been just a tremendous experience. And to have access to those products that give the guarantees that our clients want, but without the pain of what the commissions cause has just been a tremendous fit. And I would challenge you advisors, if you haven't spent time going into the academic research on what guaranteed income means for your clients throughout retirement, you need to do that. I I really have come to believe you're doing your clients a disservice, probably even breaching your fiduciary duty to not be at least thinking about annuities as part of their retirement planning and perspective. Yeah, yeah, I appreciate that, Tommy. And and I would agree completely. I mean, annuities, you know, people say they're controversial and they're not controversial with academics. I mean, academics are universally are universally in support of annuities, both for the economic benefits, the risk mitigation benefits, as well as those, you know, psychological and behavioral benefits that they can bring to a retiree. I mean, retirement is a change. You know, it's a big chain for a lot of you know clients, and change can bring anxiety. One of the things you kept referring to is you know people are used to getting that paycheck every other week. Well, an annuity can replicate that. It can start minimizing some of the change. Not to mention in this low interest rate environment where everybody's looking for yield and income, annuities do income very, very well. So like you're saying, you owe it to your clients to explore the products, see what's out there, there's a whole new set of tools for you to use and you should become educated on them. Absolutely. And then also for consumers out there that are listening and maybe these are investors and they're saying, wow, you know, I'm, you know, I normally tune into this podcast because I want to learn about the future of what's happening in venture capital and healthcare and fintech, you know, the places that we play in at the Mammoth Health and Tech Fund. If they're listening today, this is totally different. That's for like surplus money or money that they're very specifically allocating a very high level of risk in their investments. Whereas what we're talking about today is really for that bread and butter nest egg that people have helped build up. Just telling our listeners, I have my in-laws, my parents, anybody that I love that's age 50 plus, I am at least having a conversation about this type of tool for their retirement. So for you as a as a listener that may just be a consumer, somebody thinking, man, maybe I need to look at this stuff. I'm going to give you two paths. One is if you're looking for a broader financial plan and you want somebody to come in and holistically help you with that, I would recommend reach out to the team at Vestia Personal Wealth Advisors. You can do that. You can go to VestiaAdvisors.com. We are proud to be a partner with DPL. We utilize their offerings and their services. That's how we access annuities for our clients. So if you want to have a more broad-based financial plan where we're looking at kind of your entire financial life, that's what the team at Vestia Advisors does. 
Or if you're a consumer that's saying, you know, I don't need that broad-based plan, but I am really, really interested in these types of annuity products and accessing these, David, they can do that directly through you at DPL. How do they do that? Correct. The same way. They can access us through the website and call in to speak to one of our consultants. And again, we're going to use you know, technology you know, to do product analytics and find best products. And I think you've been making a really good point as to how people think about these things. So I'll, I'll say it in a slightly different way for you know, any consumers listening is a lot of what the academic research will will tell you to think about is look at annuities and other guaranteed income sources like a pension or social security to fund your essential expenses in retirement you know fund the things that you have to have your your food your shelter your health care you know those kind of things visiting grandkids that's there you go yeah. and and then use the rest of your assets where they're in the market or in venture capital that you're getting variable return use that to spend on your fun things and your legacy right because they're variable and those things can be more variable so that's where Tommy was talking about, you know, annuities can bring a lot more happiness to clients in retirement because there's a great amount of peace of mind when you've got your essential expenses, the things you cannot do without covered by guaranteed income. And that's why annuities are such valuable products and that they do it really efficiently. So you're also going to wind up with more money in that play bucket to go to the things that you want to do, invest in you know, other investments with higher upsides and, and leave greater legacies. And one of the things that's important to both David and I is that we're not in business to disrupt good relationships. So if you already have a great advisor out there and they're working with a registered investment advisor, you heard about that in my episode with Heather Fortner, the difference between advisors and brokers. You heard it again from David today. If that's you and you already have a great advisor at a registered investment advisor, then start there. Go ask them, do they have access to these products, these tools? Do they have a relationship with DPL? Maybe they already do. And if they do, we want you to start there, not at Vestia, not at DPL. And if they don't have a relationship with DPL, you might be the great catalyst to introduce them to DPL. Send them this podcast. Tell them they need to listen. And, you know, maybe between you and me, we can get them connected with David and his team and uh, get these products on their platform. Because I, I strongly believe any registered investment advisory firm out there, if they're not working with DPL, they're making a massive mistake. So, David, thanks again so much for being here. To our listeners, thank you so much for joining us again at Beyond the Ordinary. Thanks, Tommy. This was terrific. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this episode of Beyond the Ordinary. This podcast is brought to you by Mammoth and produced by Reverb. If you like this show, consider sharing it with a friend. You can subscribe to future episodes in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information about Mammoth and Beyond the Ordinary, visit us at mammoth.vc.